Hey, thank you for finding this video however you did on the app, the website, uh, the YouTube page. We're glad that you found us and today's message is important as I sum up a series called We Need Christmas. Today I talk about the need for beauty and God's bringing up himself to make this world a more beautiful place and how that can work through us. You don't want to miss it, and you don't want to miss hanging out with us on Christmas Eve, whether online or in person, December 23rd and 24th at 4 and 6 p.m. It's going to be great. We love you. Merry Christmas. Good morning. I am, I'm like worked up today. I feel like we need a little energy in the room. We feeling all right? Yeah. All right, I'm gonna, bring, I'm gonna bring a little bit of energy today. Okay, so let's go. Um, and the, the opening part of this sermon does not fit with my energy level at all. Because the, the main point of this whole series that we're doing is we need Christmas because the world is so dark. It's a dark place. There's a lot of awful things that are happening. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of broken hearts. There's a lot of terrible, horrific things that we do and that have been done, and Christmas is not just something that we have because we have a God who says, I love you so much, I'm gonna get you out of there. It's a, it's a, it's a celebration of a God who says, I love you so much that I'm gonna come and be with you, and I'm gonna help transform you, and I'm gonna dwell among you. And if you've ever had in your mind that the Christian message is about how one day all uh, of our problems will go away because God will take us away, you have the wrong idea. Because the whole point of Christmas shows us about the nature of our God that we serve. And it is not that we end up with him. Christmas is not us with God, it's God with us. Emmanuel. If you think Christmas is about us with God, then you think God's gonna change his name at some time. And if you know anything about God, he doesn't do no name changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So your picture of life and the Christian message needs to have this in it. God is with us. Advent is about how he was here 2,000 years ago. He left his spirit and he will come back here and dwell with us here and make all things new here in this place when heaven and earth come back together. We need Christmas, man, because the world is so dark and let's sober our souls for a moment. I love to do this in this sense. I love to share stories of what's happening in our church because 
it aligns us, it settles us, and we need to know. And there's so many stories. Um, in my position, I hear about most of the difficult things that are happening in our church, but I've shared one recently. Um, the Reeser family, Adam and Ashley, uh, Adam lost his, his mom, um, and then two months later, he lost his dad. This was in the last quarter of, of this year. So we did a funeral for his mom three months ago and a funeral for his dad two weeks ago. And his wife, Ashley, is pregnant. And she got COVID and is in the hospital with double pneumonia. And the baby's supposed to be born and it's a scary situation. And the world is a dark place, is it not? Now, the update from Adam as of last night is she's responding well to medication and she's doing well and she's, she's on the mend. But for the past three days, that's what we've been kind of just holding for them. What a difficult challenge. It's hard to put into words. But the world is a, is a dark place. It's full of death and brokenness and heartbreak and sickness and illness. And that's why we don't just have a God that we love, right, that loves us. We have a God that we need who needs to help us and needs to take the darkness and illuminate it. And that's what the story of Jesus is about, bringing light into our dark world. That's why he came here 2,000 years ago, and that's why he's coming back, because there's more work to be done. So we've talked about beauty, right? And, and we've talked about God's goodness, and we've talked about how the world needs justice, and we've talked about how the world needs love. And today, we're actually going to focus in on the fact that the world needs beauty because beauty is a broken light bulb. Beauty is. You might think, oh, beauty's just an aesthetic thing. Beauty's just a material thing. Beauty's just a kind of a worldly thing. It's not. It's actually part of the fabric of the nature of God that's been expressed in the created world and part of what he has for all of us to enjoy when we become fully human. And beauty is one of those things that when we talk about it and we, we think about it, um, it starts to overwhelm us. And if we experience it, it's really exciting. And I've had moments in my life where I've experienced such mesmerizing, breathtaking beauty that like, it's, 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 it's not just memories that I have of certain things. It's, it's things that have become a part of my life because of the way beautiful, those beautiful things uh, made an impression on me. In 2005, my wife and I got to go on a trip to Italy, Greece, and Turkey. And we kind of went back in time. And while we were on that trip, we got to inter kind of interface, engage with two different volcanoes. And the first one was in Greece, and it was in an island called Santorini. Has anyone ever been to Santorini? It's a famous island in the Mediterranean Sea that is actually a dormant volcano. And the top of the volcano kind of pierces up out of the ocean, and on the back side of the volcano, there is an island where people live. And when you go to visit Santorini, the ship that you're on sails into the middle of the volcano, and then it docks, and then you take a bus or a donkey, I suggest the bus, 
up switch tracks, all the way up back and forth until you get to the top and then down across the back there's a green plush island. And it's the, it's the picture that you see when you look up Greece or beautiful pictures of Greece and you see those beautiful white buildings on the side of, of the hill and the, the blue and the aqua blue and the, and the white buildings. That's typically Santorini. You'll see that in other places, but there's kind of like this whole village of those types of buildings on the side of this, this volcano island. And when I went there, it literally took my breath away. Like it is so incredible. Um, it actually hearkens to and draws people into questions about the lost city of Atlantis. There's conversations around Santorini that it might be the most beautiful place on earth. And it's interesting because the beauty that it is, the stark blues and the blacks and the white and the sun and the Mediterranean Sea, it lives on top of a dormant volcano. Kind of an interesting mix, right? of beauty and potential devastation. And on that trip, I didn't just see something as beautiful as Santorini, I got to go also to Pompeii. Has anyone ever been to Pompeii in Italy? This is where Mount Vesuvius is. And Mount Vesuvius, the whole reason you visit Mount Vesuvius is to actually look into time and look at one of the most ugly, gross, broken, scary moments that have happened in human history. And this is in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted, and it basically destroyed all of the cities around Pompeii and other settlements. Uh, it, it, is such a huge, it was such a huge eruption, it ejected a cloud of stones and ashes um, to a height of 21 miles in the air. And then that, those uh, ash and rock went up into the air and bloomed like you see on all the, the pictures of the atomic bomb, I see it that way. But it wasn't just smoke, it was ash and dirt that came from the ground. And within a matter of seconds, the towns that were right around Pompeii just got completely covered in ash and rock. Feet of it, feet of it. Some places 10, 15 feet of it. Like when we have a snowfall that comes throughout the night, this all happened in one big explosion and within minutes, a whole town was covered with feet of rock and ash. And when you visit there, you go into certain museums and they have these glass cases of these molds of human bodies. They have molds of human bodies kind of just standing like this. They have molds of a human body sitting at a table, like, like eating something. They have molds of like a mother holding a child because what they did as they started to excavate this area is they started to find these pockets in the ash and they realized that those pockets were the negative space of human bodies that were just trapped underneath there right away. So instead of digging out, they would fill in those negative spaces and they found these molds of what humans were doing right when the ash hit. And so in that picture, on that trip, I got to see such a stark picture of beauty and at the same time the contrast with the most devastating event in maybe human history, there are actually stories from people in China that said that for over a year, the whole sky, whether it was day or night, was, was night, was dark. Because the clouds just kind of, and all the ash just like, went across the world and covered half of the, the you know, that middle of the world, that, that hemisphere, if you will. And so countries were like, this is the end of the world. It's just, it's just been dark forever, and all it was was just the cloud from Mount Vesuvius. 
And so, like all the things we've talked about, beauty is a broken light bulb, okay? Justice is a broken light bulb. There's something about justice inside of us. When it happens, we're like, yes, that's the way it should be, and when it's not, there's something that feels such a a loss in our soul. And so, the gift of Christ is, at first, we don't have justice, and then Jesus shows up, and he gives us the Spirit, and he starts to bring justice into the world through him being here and through his church. The same thing is true of love. There's not relational connectivity the way it ought to be. We don't treat each other the way we're supposed to. We don't even have the ability to love one another the way we do. So, we need Christmas. Why? Because we need justice. We need Christmas. Why? Because we need love. Because our relationships are tattered and torn and stressed and they don't always work. So we need a God who can come in and give us his spirit and shine light in the darkness of our relationships. And the same thing is true of beauty. Beauty is not just something that we see in the world. It's something that God gave to us to give us a picture of who he really is. Because we don't get to experience life to the fullest unless we understand the God of utter beauty. And so he brings beauty back into the world, not just in making sure that the veil falls from our eyes in terms of what this world looks like in its natural creation, but also in our understanding of what God is up to. The truth is, is that we are all hardwired for beauty. We're hardwired for it. We have have a searching for a deeper and richer meaning in a world that sometimes seems to overflow with delight, but at other times feels dreadful and cold. Beauty is a pointer to the strange, gentle, demanding presence of the living God in the midst of his world. When you see something that's beautiful, you should, in the Christian mindset, start to associate God's creative genius, God's creative command with that beauty. And so you start to see beauty all around us, but then at the same time, you see something that lacks beauty, or it's ugly, or it's broken, and it's not the way it should be, and that's true because our world is poisoned. So when something is beautiful and then it becomes poisoned, or it becomes fractured, or it becomes never what it was supposed to be, our world is poisoned and it falls short of what God's original sacred ideal was. In fact, things that are so beautiful, i.e. you and me created in the image of God, can be treated with such gross hostility that at times we can believe that all beauty is gone. In fact, when something goes so wrong in the world that we think the world is so ugly, it can, in fact, blind us from even seeing beauty. You know this in your world, right? When something goes really wrong and something really ugly happens, or maybe you're up close and personal to a really difficult situation, and when you only see that situation, when you see what's going on with your family, or you see what's going on with certain people, or, or what's going on, maybe you're, you're, something politically is happening, and you, you see it when you're up close and, and really looking at something that's bad or ugly, it makes it almost difficult to see the beauty that is in the world. It can happen. There was a famous poet that said this, his name was Theodore Adorno, and he said that um, one cannot write poetry after Auschwitz. You can't write poetry after Auschwitz. And any of you that have ever studied the World War and you looked at what happened in those concentration camps and you you actually maybe watched the documentary or maybe you saw Schindler's List or you you saw Saving Private Ryan and and you, you got interested and you really started to study the Holocaust, if you get up close and personal to that, there's something about that ugliness and that kind of treatment of humanity, of images of God that when you see that, you think, well, there's no more, beauty has no place. 
I can't see it anymore. All I can see is ugliness. And it's actually like a myth, if you will, that birds to this day still don't sing in Auschwitz. Because at times, ugliness can make us believe that the beauty is all gone. But perhaps part of the role of beauty is to actually help us find grace within the grief. Maybe God is using beauty to continue to remind us of what he's up to. Maybe we all need to see or hear or think of something that's truly beautiful so that we can understand that God is up to something good and wonderful in our world. If you do a word study on beauty in the Bible, you won't find the word beauty that much, but you'll find a bigger word that incorporates the word beauty. In the Hebrew, there's a word for the word glory, and it's a normal Hebrew, Hebrew word that actually serves as a catch-all for um, some, something being weighty, the word glory, uh, something being awesome, and also the stunningly beautiful presence of God. And when you know something is beautiful, you're not supposed to have to tell people this is beautiful. When something is beautiful, you don't have to tell everyone, now stop, and at the count of three, everybody act like you just lost your breath. One, two, three. <gasps> when something's beautiful, it simply just naturally draws your admiration. It just draws your admiration. And so we see this in the world. We see things that are beautiful. We see Santorini. We see the different places of the world. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon and you look at that vast canyon and your breath is taken away and the tour guide doesn't say, now it's time to act like you're amazed. Because beauty naturally draws our amazement. And if we do a, a decent enough job if we do a close enough job at looking at what God has done through the text, through the literature, then what we can see is that what God has done in the scriptures is give us a tour of the beauty of his purpose on planet Earth. And we can start to see, wow, God is up to actually bringing beauty into the ugliness. And so anytime you see the word glory, you can actually kind of add the word beauty to it. One of the most famous passages we use when we talk about God's beauty or what he was up to is Psalm 19.1. It says, the heavens declare the, say it, glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is the psalmist talking about God as an artist, that he created something that is so gorgeous, that is so um, mesmerizingly beautiful, that you look at it and you go, wow, look how good God is at making things beautiful. And it just, it just screams to us, it whispers to us. It, in every way, it, 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 just, it fills the sky, it fills the space with how beautiful God is. And so when we look at the text, I, what I wanna do is I wanna look at the book of John. And if you grew up in church, like you know some things about John, if you didn't grow up in church, today's gonna be a little bit saturated with some of the word pictures from John because what John is up to in this gospel account in the, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John is one where he's not just telling a narrative and he doesn't just have kind of an idea of the life of Jesus. He's trying to show you in multiple different ways the artistry of God's purpose and the beauty of his presence on earth. And so what we see is that the 
opening, the prologue to the book of John, uh, John 1 through, 1, uh, four, through 14, is basically an invitation, and it functions like a great doorway, inviting us into a house that is itself filled corridor by corridor, room by room with more beauty. Because John 1.14 ends with him talking about seeing the beauty of God. And you might not have read it this way, but it says in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us and we have seen his, say it, glory. We have seen his beauty, the beauty of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And so what John does in, in 1 through 14 and what he does all throughout the rest of the book is he gives us word pictures and he doesn't stop every time he gives us word pictures and shows us a narrative and say, by the way, this is beautiful. You should admire this. A good writer doesn't do that. He just tells the story. He paints the picture. And if, we're, if we understand and if we get close enough to the literature, then we can go, and we can admire the beauty of what God is doing with the person of Jesus Christ on earth 2,000 years ago. In John chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning. So right away, in the beginning, he says, in the beginning. That is the same uh, couple of words that are in the beginning of the book of Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John chapter one, he says, in the beginning was the word. And so right away, what John is doing is he is saying, we're back at a new kind of Genesis. So your mind is not supposed to just think about what God is doing, but what God did. What did he do in creation? He made a beautiful place for people to live. Every single thing he made, the water, the land, the vegetation, the animals, every single thing he made, he called good. And then he made humans in his image and he called them very good works of art. And so John is about to show you Here's a creative move of God that is like a creative move that you've read about, you've, third, you, you've, you've thought about, you've heard about many, many, many different times. In the beginning, he made his images. He made us his image bearers. And we are made in his likeness. And the Bible says that you and I are beautiful. The Bible says that you're beautiful. Everybody say, I'm beautiful. You know, it takes a little bit of time and it takes a little bit of maturity to actually understand that everyone is beautiful. We think that the only thing that's beautiful is what we're attracted to. And that is a naive, arrogant perspective to have. When you think they're attractive or they're beautiful and they're not, you're ugly. Truly. There's something, when you, when you can look at another human being and because you don't have a natural draw or admiration for maybe their physical attributes, what they look like, what they talk about, you don't see the utter beauty that is every human being made in the image of God. You don't see that, you're missing the image of God. Every single human being that walks this planet is very beautiful fearfully and wonderfully made, made by the craftsman, the, the master craftsman, put it us together. It says that he knit us together, that he built us like a tapestry. 
When you get into to science and you see the way our bodies work, you can do nothing but say that everyone is beautiful. And even if someone has been marked, even if someone has some kind of physical flaw or a mental flaw or something going on, you still can see the beauty that is in them in their original design. And the, the breakdown of what should be shows us how beautiful they actually are. In Psalm 8, the psalmist actually says that you and I are made and crowned with beauty. It says this, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with beauty and with honor. In John chapter one, it says that the word became flesh and that he dwelt among us. And when it says dwelt, it's the word tabernacle. And what John is showing us is again another picture of the beauty of God because the tabernacle, you may think, is just kind of this mobile thing or it's just this temple thing and it's not what it's all about but uh, what Christianity is all about or maybe it doesn't make sense to you or you don't think there's any room for it but the tabernacle was God's movement in the book of Exodus to bring beauty back into the life of his people. A lot of people think of a tabernacle as a way out of the world, and actually what it was is a bridgehead into the beauty of God. In the tabernacle, the way that the tabernacle was supposed to be designed was to show the people that went in there a little bit of a picture of the Garden of Eden. So that when they went in there, they could go, oh, this is the presence of God. Oh, this is a temple. Oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. And so when John says that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us, he's starting to add layers, word pictures, to the beauty of what he's been up to since the whole redemptive story of humanity. He's bringing in the word tabernacle. And when you study in Exodus chapter 25, verse three through seven, you look at what those people were supposed to bring in order to make the tabernacle. It was the most beautiful gems and items and pieces of material that the world had to offer. And when you read about these, and you can just read through that right now, what you need to think about is the stark contrast of the way that gods were put in buildings during this time. Because when gods died in Egypt, they were put in giant pyramids and their bodies were put in there and it was kind of this stone kind of grave site, if you will. The temple introduces flowers and beauty and it introduces gems and it introduces light and it introduces smells and senses to the, every single one of our senses was supposed to be brought to life in the tabernacle and in the pyramids during the time you had dead gods that were being revered and in God's temple in the desert you had a living God who dwelt and went around with his people. Oh man, he is telling you, do you see? Do you see this? If you thought that was beautiful and a good Hebrew person who loved the story of the Exodus would have said that the tabernacle alone was a beautiful, beautiful thing and now he says we're seeing it come to real life in Jesus the tabernacle, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, the most beautiful thing you could have ever seen. If humans are crowned with glory and Jesus is God in a bod, if he is human and God at the same time, then what we are seeing is divine beauty. So the word pictures, it all just starts to happen throughout this whole section of the book of John. 
And he starts to bring out the New Testament stories, the stories that many of us kind of live for and love and, and, and have shaped us. Uh, he goes through this corridor, this, this tour, if you will, of beauty. And in the middle of the very book, in John chapter 11, my favorite story in arguably the Bible is John chapter 11. It's the resurrection of Lazarus. And John puts the story of the resurrection of Lazarus right in the middle of his text. Because what he is saying about where he's placing the literature is this is the centerpiece of humanity for now. In the story of Lazarus, you are seeing what's happened to humanity, what happens to humanity, what can happen with Christ, what will happen with Christ. You're seeing the past, you're seeing the present, and you're seeing the future all in one story. You read the story of Lazarus and you actually take piece by piece the ideas, the teaching, the interactions that took place between Lazarus, between uh, at the end with Jesus, between Jesus and Mary and Martha, between Jesus and his disciples. You will actually see right in the middle. And John's like, if you only read one thing and you read this, you will see basically the entire narrative of human and God's interaction all in one chapter. And Jesus, as you know, he finds out that Lazarus is sick. He doesn't go to help him right away. It's believed that he, he was so close to the city that maybe he was afraid uh, to go there at the time or not ready to go there at the time. But actually what you find out in, in the text is that he prays immediately for the resurrection of Lazarus the two days before he gets there. Because when Jesus ends up at the tomb and he prays in front of Lazarus, he says, God, I'm, I'm thanking you. And he, he prays a prayer of thanksgiving, which tells the reader that Jesus already had a conversation with God about the resurrection of Lazarus. And the only reason he's praying is so that the people know that he was up to doing something of a resurrection magnitude in that moment, and he's been planning. And the whole purpose that he's praying is so that people can see that God has a plan and it's brought us to this moment. And what the resurrection of Lazarus shows us when Jesus says, Lazarus, Come forth. Uh, this, is what, this is what it says in John 11. It says, when he had said this, Jesus, after his prayer, called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and the cloth around his face. Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. What you see here is a picture of life bursting forth into a world of darkness. This is in a, a, uh, a grave site, if you will, and Lazarus is there, and God says, come forth, and he steps out, and he's still wrapped up in grave clothes, and the picture of the grave clothes is a picture of your and I, our reality. Yes, there's resurrection, but there's still more death to come. Yes, this is great that he rose from the dead, but something else has to happen so that every one of us one day can raise to new life without any grave clothes. And so the author is just showing you this is what God is up to. He's gonna raise him, and then one day he's gonna have no clothes, but uh, grave clothes. And then Jesus, when he comes out of the tomb, at the end of John chapter 20, he has no grave clothes on. And the author is saying, do you see the movement of God? Do you see the beauty of what is happening? Lazarus still has his grave clothes, life, but still death. Jesus leaves his grave clothes. Jesus has something new that has started with his resurrection. It just goes on and on, and then when you jump to Jesus' resurrection, you see this kind of mysterious, wild morning that is Easter morning. 
and there's all these rumblings and people are running to and from the grave and Mary goes back to the grave and when she sees that Jesus' body is gone, it says this. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other one at the foot. And you might think, well, they're just covering their territory. One sitting at the head. You think about the angels. Did they have a conversation? Who gets to sit where? So when she looks in, can I sit at the end? Which one's closer to the door? You know, it's like where you sit for dinner. No, there's so much more going on. This is actually a picture of the tabernacle. So John brings us back to where he started to show us that God is doing what he's been up to and something new is happening. Because in the tabernacle, there were multiple different chambers and the place where the presence of God would live was called the Holy of Holies. You could only go in there one day a year and you had to be perfectly like ready from a spiritual and from a disciplined perspective, otherwise you might die. Because God's presence was in there. And in the Holy of Holies, there were the, the 10 commandments, the kind of this box, if you will, and on top of it was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where the presence of God would actually rest in the temple. And flanking either side of the mercy seat were angels made of gold. And so the picture of any person that is looking at this text, at least at a second or third layer, is going, oh my goodness. God's presence was in between two angels in the tabernacle for all those years. Now we look into a tomb where we believe God's presence was. We look in, we see two angels, but what do we see that's different? The presence of God is not stuck in one place. It's raised to new life in a mobile man tabernacle called Jesus, who is now the bread of life and light. And he's walking around, and he's outside the tomb, and Mary is weeping. And she bumps into him, and she thinks he's a gardener. And then she says, they've taken my Lord. And he, she says, Mary, and she falls down, and she realizes that her friend, her Savior, Jesus, has now risen to life. And he's amongst them in a garden, which is a picture of Genesis, back to new creation. On the first day of the week, that story happens, which is like the first day of new creation. So with the resurrection, we're seeing the temple of God, we're seeing the presence of God, we're seeing the beginnings of new creation all happen, boom, in a moment. What a beautiful picture that we have a savior who rose to bodily life. Mary's weeping, it represents, it represents the suffering of the world. It represents the brokenness that we all feel. That's, that's, that's what we're seeing when she weeps. She looks into a tomb and sees he's not there and she thinks this is only getting darker and then she turns around and she sees Jesus and she worships, and this is Advent. There's still so much darkness, but we have the beginning of life. And in the world that we, we live in, we know that these things need to be made right, and we know that we have justice and love and beauty, and we have these things that don't happen the way they're supposed to, but with the 
coming of Jesus at the first advent, the first arrival, we see the light is starting to shine. Emmanuel, God with us. And then as he's giving us the spirit, we bring more light into the world. The light gets brighter because you and I get to be people of love and people of justice and people of beauty. And we get to be the ones to help shed the light of God and the love of God into the world. There's a low light now, but one day there'll be full illumination. One of the things that I think is so wonderful about the book of John and is so mesmerizingly beautiful is in John chapter one, John calls Jesus God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with us, and the word was with God, and the word is God, was God. He says that Jesus is God. And all throughout the book, no one ever calls Jesus God until the very end when Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus rose to life until he can see him. And Jesus shows up and Jesus says, go ahead, check out, check out the, the nails, go ahead and touch. And when Thomas sees that Jesus is in fact risen to new life, it says that he yelled out, my Lord and my God. And this is the only time that Jesus is called God by a human in the book of John. And what John is doing is he is bringing that final chord, that final resolution. He's putting all the pieces together of his orchestra and he is saying, here he is, this is God. Now let's go on a journey of looking at the beauty of God being with us through the tabernacle, through making things great, through showing us where we're headed and where we are with Lazarus and through what God is up to with the resurrection on Easter morning. And now we can all declare that Jesus is divine, that he is holy. And the purpose of the book of John is that every single person would look at Jesus and go, my Lord and my God, you're divine, you're holy. And it's, it's a beautiful picture, John's final chord. And so as you just sit for a moment, I want you to listen to the strings and the beauty of the sound and let it hit you and know that God in the book of John and in the life of Christ has been up to something similar to show you he's holy, to show you he's divine, to draw you into worship, to draw you in to fellowship. Hey everybody, thanks for watching today. If you have questions, wanna get connected, have a prayer request, or just need somebody to talk to, you can text the number on the screen. We love you guys, thanks for watching today, and we'll see you later.